is the Beyond the Studio podcast. Welcome to the show. I'm Amanda Adams. And I'm Nicole Muller. And we're here to help you figure out the business of being an artist. Here we'll share honest conversations with artists, makers, and business experts and dive deep into the work that happens beyond the studio. Since this is an adult podcast hosted by two young adults, there's a possibility of some adult language being used. If this might offend ears around you, be sure to pop in your headphones before listening to this episode. All right, today Amanda and I are going to be interviewing Nick Hollebarger, a Bay Area-based sculptor and artist, and Nick is one of the first artists that I met here in the Bay Area. Um, He actually reached out to me seeing that I was new to the city and invited me to meet up for coffee, which uh, just speaks to how proactive he is in making connections, and after getting to know him a little bit and hearing about his career path as a sculptor and educator and a preparator and how uh, diligent he is with working in studio time, uh, his strategies for time management. Um, I knew he would be a perfect guest for this podcast. So thanks for joining us, Nick. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Yeah, maybe you could uh, just give us a little more background on yourself. Uh, like what led you to pursue art in the first place, how you found your way to art school, um, and then eventually landing out in the Bay Area. Wow. Uh, all right, so <laughs> that's a lot, but uh, we'll we'll do our best here. We got time. Yeah, great. So the first question was, why was I into art, right? Yeah. Yeah, just a little bit of background on kind of how you found your way into sculpture, or maybe what some of your first experiences with art were, either as a kid or in high school, whenever that may be. Yeah, so from... <laughs> From ever since I was a, a little kid, I was always interested in art. But I mean, that's a pretty stereotypical story for many artists, right? I guess I think many of us know that we kind of want to do these things and want to be creating on a daily basis, but uh, not many of us end up going through with it. So I found that kind of interesting that that's a typical story. But more specifically, uh, there was a moment when I think I decided that I was going to keep doing it and that I was going to actually like kind of fight to be creative and like live a more creative life. And it actually came around, I think, when I was like 14 years old and I was in uh, junior high school. And we had an all year long art class that was offered only to about 20 students out of like the whole class of about 400. And they ended up not choosing me in one of the classes. And we had to even do like a portfolio and like send it in, you know, there's a bunch of 14 year olds doing this. And it was interesting because I was I just kept questioning, like, why didn't I get in? Like, I really want to be in this. And and then I started hearing all these other students saying, oh, I got in, but I didn't even want to be in it. (laughs) I was like, what what is going on here? So I ended up uh, going rogue and going to the principal's office and then uh, with my portfolio. (laughs) And I asked uh, if I could be in the all-year-round class because I had all these bird drawings I was doing when I was 14, and I I laid them out all on on his desk. I'll never forget it. And uh, I was like, hey, what's going on? Like, Mm -hmm. there's kids in here that don't want to be in here, and, like, I do, and I clearly can do this. And he's like, well, yeah. 
He's like, I guess, I guess you're right. Maybe we should talk to your parents. So that's kind of how that worked out. And I think that kind of projected a lot of other things. Uh, so the kids that were chosen in the next year of the all year round art class had precedent because they were in it the year before. Mm-hmm. And if you're in that one, you basically have an early meeting with the high school art teacher who ended up projecting me out into getting almost $30,000 worth of scholarship money for art wow. to go to school. I ended up going to a private university, but the thing was is uh $30,000 is still $30,000, you know, it's still yeah. a, a big deal for, I think, you know, the mm-hmm. arts community. And it, and it says something a lot too about, um, you know, my high school art teacher, Jason Sanderson. I remember the year I graduated, he had a group of 20 kids and not all of them wanted to go to school for art, but he had all of the seniors apply for school anyway in the art program. And as it turns out, out of those 20 kids, he ended up getting over, I think he ended up getting $625,000 in scholarships among those 20 kids. Holy cow. Yeah. Almost every kid ended up getting some type of scholarship Mm -hmm. money. And there's something to be said about that, I think, with just the constant issues we're having in the country with trying to prove that creative A can make you money and sustain your life and then B make you happy Mm -hmm. and like and you have a better understanding of things and we fortunately have one of the better art schools or art programs in that state so I grew up in Michigan Mm -hmm. and uh, ours is one of the few that is still going on Mm -hmm. Um, whereas you know 80% of them or something like that some really high number keep getting cut I mean they have right now they have a like part-time art teacher come around on a cart Oh my god. And like go into kids' math classes and like try to do art projects and I'm just like, this is insane. You know, like mm-hmm. they're cutting that, they're cutting all sorts of different things. So the public school I went to, he knows how to get things done, you know, yeah. he knows how to get money, he knows how to encourage the creative process and you know, since I went into the principal's office that day when I was like thirteen, fourteen years old, that kind of projected me into these other things that I had to keep proving myself for everything. But it's really nice to know that like once you're kind of on the right path people notice it and you kind of they see it and they want to help and so I've had a lot of really great mentors to kind of get me where I am and it's a very similar thing that happened in undergraduate and graduate school before I ended up coming out to California so I went to Santa Heights University for my undergrad where I ended up getting a, a minor in art history uh, in mixed media I ended up getting my BFA in. and I met some really great teachers there too and that as it turns out I got the biggest amount of money for a scholarship there it was also my high school art teacher's alma mater as well oh wow um so he kind of always asks people to at least apply mm-hmm. there for many of the students that he teaches, especially art students. Many of my class were first generation college students, mm-hmm. I'd say 80%. And so that's a big deal, you know, when the institutions have legacies and it's easier for some people to get in and not others. And mm-hmm. so the mere fact that, you know, he has connections back mm-hmm. at his alma mater, he tries to make sure that he can pass that along as well. And so that's kind of what ended up happening. And, and through that, I met two of the best mentors you know I had in in all of undergrad was uh his name is Peter Barr he was the head of the department at the time and I think they rotate through every two years trading off heads of the department he's the art historian there and he's probably one of the smartest people I've ever met. He was my technical academic advisor mm-hmm. when I first came in. So I knew him right away. He's very intimidating because he's so incredibly intelligent and very specific in the way he talks. Coupled with his stature, it's it's hard to be around at first. So you got to get used to it. He ends up being like 
one of the best mentors and one of the smartest people, most kind person too. Yeah. It's really a great thing. No joke. He's close to seven foot. He's a tall guy. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he was definitely major influence. He's the one that actually helped project me and he helped push me get into this, uh, this other program uh, that helps underrepresented first generation college students. Uh, get into college mm -hmm. and it was through this program that ended up helping pay for a lot of things for me to get into graduate school that mm -hmm. program is called Ronald E. McNair program mm -hmm. and Ronald E. McNair was the first African-American astronaut to go into space is this a program that's specific to the school that you went to or this is like a nationwide yeah, so it's all over the country it's surprising that a school our size has it because we actually shared the program with another neighboring school because ours was so small and didn't get enough numbers wow. to join in the program. Oh, wow. It, but it is all over the place. But they, so it's typically for larger universities? Yes, and it's also waitlisted, like insane. Okay. So I guess the University of Michigan, mm -hmm. our director was telling us at the time, she's like, you know, there's 200 kids on their waitlist right now trying to get into this program, you know? And so it's... It was a big deal, and it and it typically helped project science and mathematics students go and get their PhD. Mm. But okay. our director was kind of innovative because she always allowed art students to do it, which is not there's nothing saying you can't do it. But most universities don't do it, mm -hmm. especially if there's a wait list. They have to justify giving it to an art student, which you know how that works. Most likely, they're not yeah. going to do that. Yeah. But since you know we were combined with another school, we actually had a large majority of art students. We had um, one musician, we had two fine art students, I think a creative writer, mm -hmm. and so you know something that was deemed almost for math and science, you know, to basically be an astronaut. It was a pretty big privilege to be able to be accepted in that, and so Peter Barr ended up referencing me to that mm -hmm. and said, hey, would you like to do this? It's a good program. And not because of this reason, but in addition, another professor that I had in the art department, um, who I was already pretty close with, um, Christine Rising, she ended up being my mentor for the McNair programs. You also had someone kind of guiding you. And she did that for past art students in the department as well. She did that for maybe about six other students that ended up working out really well and those two people very much um, had my back and helped kind of project me into going into graduate school where I ended up applying to I applied to 10 graduate schools wow that's quite it a is. lot yeah, it's yeah. a big venture I mean, <laughs> So how does the McNair program, how does that f help facilitate students then going on to grad school? Is it uh, a scholarship or like a fellowship or in addition to a mentorship, it sounds like? Yeah, so there's a mentorship. Coupled with that, we would go to meetings once a week and just kind of do updates and progress. And then we kind of had to do a thesis. Mm -hmm. And then we'd have to do a presentation. And we ended up, they ended up sending us out to Utah to do a conference. And so we did speeches at the conference, all sorts of different things like that. So at the end was the conference, and that was kind of your end goal. And every time you achieved all these things, it was kind of like a job. There was nothing in the rules saying mm. that you could not partition out the stipend that you give the students by means of them earning it. And so we had a lot of like workshops and workbooks and all these different things. So if you kind of like, if you kept doing all these things to help you succeed, you get paid for it essentially. Um, not to mention, there was a, a whole part of the budget that she could allocate towards paying for students to go out and visit these universities, paying for the flights, paying for the applications. Oh, wow. All my applications were, were wow. waived. 
And that's why I decided to apply to 10 because yeah, if they're paying huge. for it, why not go all out? And I think that's the point, right? Yeah. I mean, that's part of the whole idea of getting a scholarship like that. Is yeah, to help open up your opportunities and yeah, challenge exactly. you to do and try things that you typically wouldn't try to do when it's all on you. I mean, God, the application yeah. fees, they're not cheap, especially if you're applying to 10. Like, that's a that's a big chunk of change. But for them to be able to... $120 a piece, yeah. typically. Oh. <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. There goes a grand plus. <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm saying. And, you know, and not to mention the hours, because we, we spent... So we started doing that at the end of my sophomore year. So we did it for two years, getting prepared for graduate school. I mean... Wow. So while I was doing undergrad, I was getting ready for graduate school. Mm-hmm. And all the things that you're learning during the, that time, it, it's really an accelerated thing. And it, for art students, it's an interesting experience because um, I'm only, I'm 28 years old and I have my master's, which is typically pretty early. Yeah. So where did you ultimately end up going and how did you determine which program for graduate school was going to be the best fit for you? I definitely wanted to get out of the Midwest for the most part. I grew up in a in a very small town I went to school and also another small town. It was only about 45, 50 minutes away from where I grew up. But like the main thing was the culture. It wasn't so much, you know, winters or anything like that. It was, it was mostly cultural based. Mm -hmm. I wanted to kind of be around other people that were excited about art. And when you grow up in the Midwest and when you begin college right in 2008, right when the recession happened, Mm -hmm. you know, everyone in that Mm -hmm. area is an auto worker. And it's it's a staggering amount. I mean, my dad lost his job all four years I was in school. And, you know, him along with some of uh, my old friends from high school, they had, uh, they had two parents that were laid off. So their whole livelihood was just gone. And so when you have something like that happen, mm-hmm. and people have been so reliant on that, not to mention the other social, like psychological aspects of working on an assembly line and what that does to character and what that does to people's, you know, healthy mental stability you just can't afford you just don't think about art because it's not important because you got to feed your family you know so getting out of that was incredibly important for me and so what happened was I ended up (laughs) applying to at least one to two schools on every coast and then two in Chicago Mm -hmm. so I applied to two schools in New York City one in Boston two in Chicago one in Portland and one in San Diego and ended up getting into got into three and waitlisted on one and then from there it was kind of the choice was parsons or it was massachusetts college of art and design because those were the two that i initially got into instead of being like waitlisted shortly after that on a couple other ones that i didn't know about and i was ready to make a decision and so i was thinking it's either is it boston or is it new york city and i really wanted to go to new york city but never visiting a real city (laughs) besides detroit uh, you kind of, you don't know what to do with that. And you're like, okay, let's take the smaller city just to see how this all works. Yeah, that was a little bit of a shock, yeah. maybe, going to New York for the first yeah. time. Yeah, I mean, it was a blast because I always wanted to travel and I always wanted to do things. And so the McNair program ended up getting me out to all those schools. So my first time visiting New York City was, mm-hmm. you know, 
visiting a graduate school. You know, my first time visiting Chicago was for visiting graduate school. And so those type of things were really great to kind of get me a small taste of what it would actually be like. Because as it turns out, even Boston, which is where I chose to go, was still very, very different and very much culture shock. I couldn't even imagine if I've never even been to a city before and then just picking New York City. Oh, yeah. Just be, <laughs> I, I could see how if people do that thinking they're going to make it, I could see how they wouldn't. Because they yeah. can get discouraged insanely fast. I mean, because they'll beat you down if you're not prepared. Was grad school always mm-hmm. on your mind? Or was it something that kind of this program allowed you to consider the opportunity of going to grad school? Yeah. So I'm a first generation college student, not only college student, but someone to graduate from college, let alone mm-hmm. start talking about grad school. And when I brought that up, for the first time, I didn't even have that great of a handle on what this whole thing was about. I was trying Mm -hmm. to explain it to my parents. They very well, in some different circumstances, could have been college graduates. They're, They're definitely smart enough that's for sure. But they just didn't know what grad school was. And they're like, wait a minute, you're already going to school. You're going to go to school for two more years? I don't understand what that means. And I'm like, well, it kind of has to do with this. And there's all these other things. It it was a a long process to try to convince them of, I'm going to go and spend more money and go to school for another two years to do art, which was already pretty tough to convince people of. Yeah. Had your family always been generally supportive of you being an artist or wanting to pursue that just in general, even at the undergrad level? Or was that also a conversation that you had where it was really um, sticking up for yourself and that, that path that you wanted to take? Or was your family also kind of spurring you along in that direction? Yeah, it was a, it was definitely a struggle. And mostly, again, it comes to that down to that cultural situation where it's more of like the way people look at the creative culture and art and as a general thing. They just don't have time for it. And when you don't have time for it, you don't value it. And you start listening to stereotypes and things like that. So it's, you know, my parents, I think, were more of a product of that cultural area, you know, in that in that time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so they were, mm-hmm. as most good parents would be, uh, terrified of their kid talking about something that is wildly accepted as being a, a dead end for, for making any type of a living. And so they were terrified. And so, yeah, it was, it was a constant battle to kind of convince them that there's money in this. And on top of that, money is not the whole thing because you sound like a child saying that, um, yeah. you know, when you're trying to convince your parents of like, it's not everything. And they're like, what do you know? You know, you, you haven't paid bills yet. Yeah. <laughs> and you're like, yeah, I guess. But uh, I had a lot of good mentors, and so those kind of things kept me focused. I was always kind of bound and determined to do that. They kind of mentioned college uh, in high school, but really the push came from, you know, my high school art teacher. From there, um, I was just introduced to this grad school thing, and I just kept learning more about it, and it sounded really interesting. And then I started realizing, I started all these artists I was l- learning in art history, so many of the contemporaries, they all had MFAs. And I was like, oh, that's kind of what I was just offered to like go and try to get. And I'm like, maybe this is something that would be a good stepping stone for, for whatever I want to do next. Plus, I always loved teaching, and so that was kind of, I guess, the safe backup excuse, right? Yeah. Um, it's like, oh yeah, I could always, I could always be a professor, you know, and like, if all else fails. Yeah, I wanted to ask if that was always something that you saw yourself doing. If having those really important mentors as a young person and in high school inspired you to want to go down that path yourself, or were you even thinking about it at that point? Um, because I know you do teach now. 
Um, so how did you kind of find your way into that? Was it something you always wanted to incorporate into your career path? Yeah, yeah. I've, I've always wanted to do some type of teaching, and that's kind of changed throughout just time being in the art world. Started off, you know, like wanting to do elementary school and kind of like moved my way up through this idea of, okay, now I want to teach in college um, because I don't want to do finger paints and things like that. I wanted to make sure I could teach adults. Through teaching at some of these nonprofits that I have, they are very eager and willing to let me just kind of explore where I want to go with my, uh, my syllabi. And so that's been actually a development that I've learned to love. Got me rethinking the the college route just because a slight fear of bureaucracy, and I guess in a way, I'd be, I'd be afraid that they would destroy the syllabus, <laughs> mm. um, and it would it wouldn't be as fun for me, and it wouldn't be as as fun and challenging for the students. So that's kind of where I'm at with that for right now. But we'll see how that kind of keeps developing. Uh, I wanted to ask you what a like typical day looks like for you kind of balancing between your uh, teaching job and uh, gallery work and your art practice and then just also trying to have a normal life on top of all of that. Like what what does your day look like? My wife's in the room and she is listening right now. She's <laughs> she's going to keep you honest. She, yeah, she's going to well she's also going to hate the fact that it's going to be, the list is going to be pretty accurate and it's, it's jam packed. Yeah. <laughs> so I guess a typical day, I get up around six, uh, usually, yeah, usually six o'clock every day and get ready. And I'm usually out by, you know, six thirty seven o'clock and I do about an hour commute. But before any of that even happens, actually, I try to work in the, like in a studio. So it's, it used to be a studio at Root Division which is a local nonprofit in San Francisco. And so that's kind of what I was doing, is taking that hour commute and then going there and working for two hours Mm -hmm. and then riding my bike to work, where then I would go and I'd work a full day and then take the the hour back and I would, you know, be able to come home usually around 8 o'clock. Some nights when I'm teaching, classes don't start until 6 and then they run until nine. You know, it takes about an hour to get back home from there too. So I wouldn't be coming home until about ten. So it kind of fluctuates. Oh wow! Um, yeah. Here and there. So that's I mean, and pretty consistently for the past year and a half, I've gotten in a really good groove of staying very consistent with that. Mm-hmm. Um, and some things changed with that. Um, I ended up leaving Root Division. Uh, as far as being an artist there, I still teach there. It just became San Francisco. The Bay Area itself is just so expensive. Mm-hmm. And it became, I started getting to a point where I had enough work where I was starting to, I was really ready to start pushing this out into the world. I couldn't apply to all the things that I needed to apply to with my work and pay for a studio. And so that kind of led me to... Just with application mm -hmm. fees and all the time that goes with that. Mm -hmm. Even with Root Division and as good as they were for prices in the Bay, you know, as far as the studio is concerned, a private studio at that, it was around 300 bucks for about 110 square feet. And it's still insane. I mean, Mm -hmm. you know, and that's no fault to them. They're doing the best they can. They have the best rates, you know, in, in the city, but I mean, it's, uh, it's tough, you know, when you have materials as well and all these other things that you're trying to take care of, you know, you want to have a website that costs money and takes maintenance you you want business cards you want all these things Mm -hmm. and so uh something had to give and so I figured out that I could make most of my stuff outside of my house (laughs) 
outside of my apartment on the sidewalk. Oh, wow. Um, so that's your studio now. Yeah. So kind of, yeah. Uh, we live in an area of West Oakland that is pretty lax on what you're doing outside. We live right next to like a semi-parking place. So mm-hmm. there's activity going on all night. I mean, so there's never never a dull moment out there and it's mostly industrial. So it's, it's not nearly as big of a deal as opposed if I was in suburbia trying to do that out in my front lawn I don't think that would work out so well Um, so we Mm -hmm. do that and then I'll take the work back inside after I make the cuts and then I can paint inside Mm -hmm. Um, and then installations are typically um, going to running out some type of place that that is willing for me to kind of like mess with their walls and they have to have white walls and I set up there uh, do my installs take my photos and then be able to put them online um, so that cuts costs way down. So then I can out reallocate that money back into, you know, bigger fabrications if need be. Shipping becomes insanely expensive. Yeah, especially for sculpture. Even me being conscious uh-huh. of how to do that stuff, um, it's still expensive. I mean, I, I know so many artists that have no idea how to ship their work or how to pack it. They're They're shooting themselves in the foot because they might overspend three or four hundred dollars when they don't have three or four hundred dollars most of us don't have that much extra money to send on on a work because they could have overpacked it they could have um outsourced it and then those people are going to charge money there's all sorts of different reasons why people you know end up spending way more than they should working on my newest series i was conscious of that like i was lucky enough that i had this experience as being a, a preparator or slash installer at various different galleries and universities and museums. That kind of experience really helped me get prepared for when I wanted to do those type of things myself. So that mm-hmm. that really uh, shaped the work in a way, um, in a logical sense. Yeah, you know, I mean, it still costs for one piece to go across the country fit perfectly. It's um, it's still $70 one way. It's as light and as small as I can make it because my work mm-hmm. lends itself to being able to kind of expand and con- and constrict uh, its size. And they don't have to be one thing. Yeah. And it's just really a, a wild thing. Yeah, which is pretty good, I would say, because I know that you make um, large sculptural pieces that are often site-specific or maybe incorporate drawn Mm -hmm. elements, but you're working with a lot of large wood pieces, so that's definitely not cheap to transport that back and forth. Um, And I think it is such an afterthought for a lot of artists, too. You know, we know there's a really big upfront investment in um, just the time and the resources that you're putting into making your work or, you know, getting the materials or the surface you need, but also taking into account how you might get the work out there, uh, like the application fees for applying to things and then certainly getting your work to a show, you know, shipping it there. Um, is a huge thing. I even had to turn down um, like a group show opportunity recently in Southern California because uh, it was, you know, huge painting that I just couldn't afford to get down Mm -hmm. there. So, you know, you're kind of weighing the pros and the cons of is this the value that this opportunity might bring to me or, you know, the the sort of future opportunities it might lead yeah. to, the exposure, what yeah. have you, you know, is that worth the the cost that you're investing as the artist Absolutely. to get your work there? And so in this case, I felt like maybe not, and I had to 
um, to turn it down. But um, it sounds like that's something that you're really now thinking about mm-hmm. ahead of time and kind of factoring that into the yeah. costs uh, that it takes maybe to produce your work. Would you say that's yeah, true? Yeah, absolutely. I'm treating it in... So the creative process is, is as separate as I could possibly make it. I am beginning to run this more like a business because it is, to me, important enough to make sure that it, it is sustainable. It, it could break even. It could be a nonprofit for all I care, you know, in that regard. It could break even and I'd be, at least then I can, Mm -hmm. like, I can justify it financially. Psychologically, mentally, you know, we all, you know, all of us being artists, we can justify it pretty well just by itself. But, you know, when other things in life come up, you got to be able to sustain it. So I'm running it more and more like a business and Mm -hmm. I have... Uh, all sorts of spreadsheets and graphs and all sorts of things trying to map out which months, like what's my monthly average for applications and then how much does that typically cost and then what's my budget? Am I hitting that budget? Getting a hold of those Mm -hmm. things, those logistics are insanely important come to find out. It's not something I initially knew and understood, but as I was getting more and more deep into this, I realized I was wasting a lot of money. Uh, and I didn't want to continue doing that. And I mean, I caught it still pretty early where, you know, it only had to happen once or twice before I was like, oh, that's, that needs to change. Like right now, yeah. that's kind of where I'm at now. I'm, I'm, I've been thinking a lot about when I first started the, the work, I was thinking a lot about how can I have an art practice that is, that I can keep making things that are unique still uh, that are still tied to my interests and my concepts but yet how can I still make it so it is requesting the least amount of like attention from me uh once I ship it out Mm -hmm. once it once it goes out into the world and like how can I keep everything very um very reasonable and so I started thinking about weight um as a concept because a lot of the things when you ship are based off weight also size and then what do those two basic mm-hmm. concepts, and you can turn that into a game almost, and you can kind of figure out like, okay, the weight, I really don't want it to be more than this, more than 20 pounds, because then it's going to charge me significantly extra. Well, sometimes the weight's associated with the size, and so you have to play a balancing game with those two. From that, I was trying to figure out how those tie into other concepts that I was thinking of. Uh, not to mention, I was experimenting with... Uh, ideas that I had in grad school but never really started making and so I started doing those things and it kind of all evolved together um, that knowledge base and that understanding kind of evolved together and it took about a total of 10 months before I really refined how to produce uh, my spatial binary series like each individual work how to paint it what's the most efficient way to do this how to package it all these things and they there's always new nuances with that Um, Right now I'm working on trying to get better packaging as far as more durable packaging because I've had a lot of issues recently with uh, with the shippers and them damaging my my work and damaging my my boxes. Mm -hmm. And so I'm like, okay, if I move them up to wood, it wouldn't actually weigh a whole lot more, but they would be more durable. And so now I'm trying to figure out how to properly um, customize those because I customize everything. Um, they're like the foam that keeps the work in place is all customized and made sure that it's all die cut so it fits properly. Wow. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's quite a bit of time spent on that as well and thought going into just the instructions of the work and the shipment of it. I was told something in graduate school, uh, by the chief preparator at the gallery at Massachusetts College of Art and Design. And he was one of the youngest, uh, 
chief preparators at the Guggenheim. Oh, wow. Yeah. No joke. Yeah. So knew, no, no joke. He was 26, I believe. Oh, my God. Um, yeah. And he wow. was he was in charge of people that are in their 50s that have been doing this for longer than he was alive. And he had to figure out, because he was knowledgeable, and his dad was a construction worker, and so he had this experience on how to like how to go through installations very logically in a, mm-hmm. in a way that many other preparators were not doing because many of them are artists, and they don't it's not their job to think about those things on a daily basis until yeah. they go to work. And you're like, that, that doesn't work. One of the things he told me kind of through that experience, um, you have to also take in consideration everyone else working in the gallery. As an artist... Uh, being at an art school as well, which uh, I personally don't like using all too often, it's college. You know, being at this school that is considered an art school, everyone kind of has this almost entitlement of, I'm an artist and I'm going to get my things in shows and this is how it's going to work. And then they go and try to introduce themselves in that manner to a curator who possibly has seen that um, 3,000 times in the past two months. That's not how they're going to respond to it. What my my former boss was telling me is that there's chief preparators, there's registrars, there's assistant curators. Um, You don't have to just be going after those curators. He's like, if you impress other people in the process, we all talk to the curator. We are in close contact with uh, him or her Mm -hmm. every day. And we Mm -hmm. have swing and we have sway. And he's like... For example, he showed me a couple artists right there. He's like, this artist, I will make sure, you know, the curator will tell me what's going on. And I may not want this artist back because of the way they package their work. Because it's a liability for us. It's a liability for everyone. If the artist can't even do it, then it costs people money. He's like, so that's how I base my decisions off. And he's like, however, this artist over here, everything's streamlined. It's super easy to install. It's super easy to mm-hmm. deinstall. He's like, it's never an issue. He's like, we've shown this guy once a year at our auction for the past 10 years because he's he's easy. Yeah, His work's great and, and everything else is he makes it so easy on us. Why not have him in here? Yeah. And I'm like, that is, I'm like, that just blew my mind. I was like, what are you talking That's about? That's so amazing. To hear, because I think, you know, in some cases you might chalk it up to a bad attitude or, you know, artists just not caring. But in a lot of other cases, I think it has more to do with the lack of education Mm -hmm. or understanding just about those other processes and sort of what comes after making your work. You know, Mm -hmm. that's where most artists want to focus their time. But then the whole process of working with Mm -hmm. the gallery or museum or packaging and shipping their work, those are sort of all these Mm add-ons that you have to learn along the way and and pick up on these whole new skill sets and so it's it's just so interesting to hear you talk about that and how just you know being easy to work with can really go such a a long way and furthering your yeah it's it's almost like how uh like I've, I've had a lot of day jobs in customer service and even though they are draining and exhausting and stressful it it teaches you so much about how to communicate with people and at the end of the day, mm-hmm. you just you just want to interact with people that are easy to work with. And mm-hmm. like that's a huge lesson to apply to your art practice as well. Like you are dealing with people. <laughs> yeah. Don't be that difficult mm-hmm. person because then they're not going to want to continue to work yeah. with you. And yeah. I know when I know that someone is like a very quality human being, it makes me appreciate them <laughs> so much more. Right. And... There's yeah. there's no reason to be difficult. You're going to, you know, 
They yeah. say you'll uh, catch more flies with honey than with vinegar. So be yeah. be honey. <laughs> I mean, and it's and it's really interesting too because it's it, it's something that I don't know. It goes back and forth. What I see, it comes and goes. So the percentages are all over the place with really great people that I meet and then really terrible people and people with attitudes and so on and so forth. And those things are pretty upfront, but like Nicole was saying, it was like what comes after the work. And I decided like, that's, I can't think about it that way. I have to think about that is part of the work. It's not what comes after. It's like, it's almost what comes before. It's like, this will kind of determine what I can actually afford. Because if I'm only making, let's say a thousand dollars a month and you know, 50% of it's going towards everything else in my life. Plus I want to do savings. So it leaves me 20%. It leaves me 200 bucks out of a thousand. I want to be able to make art and then be able to get it out into the world with that budget. How the hell can I do that? Mm -hmm. And so you, you have to try to start figuring out and let some of those weird, more abstract things that have to do with money and budgeting kind of influence certain aspects of your work because you get it out there and people start liking it you can start doing bigger things. You're getting your stuff out there. It's like we kind of forget about starting mm-hmm. smaller and you know more logical um, because size and I and I every time I go to a museum I love it and I'm totally a part of this whole thing. I can't get over the size of big paintings, for example. I love huge paintings. I think a lot of people love that too, and it, they're they're powerful. And it could just be you know one color with a line down the center, you know, and it it, it can be amazing. Most in part because of the sheer size. But for someone maybe like us three, the shipping cost on that. If you were to just ship something like a a ten by ten foot painting down to Southern California, you're you're just down to Southern California. You're talking like seven hundred dollars you know, just in shipping it, mm-hmm. minimum. I mean, that's if you're lucky, uh, you know, and that, and then not to mention putting it on the on a time frame. If, it, if they're only accepting the work during a certain week, you know, you have to time and ship everything accordingly, and then sometimes it costs extra if you're too late to the, to the party. Ugh. And it's, yeah, I mean, there's so much there, and we all want, we all definitely want to do what we want to do, but sometimes I wonder, I'm just like, my practice, I decided to skew it more towards like, how can I just keep getting stuff out there? And then eventually someone's going to ask me what I want to do with no rules. They're going to be like, no, like, what do you want to do? And I'll be like, well, you know, I haven't had it. No. What do you want to do? I will pay for basically everything, Yeah. you know? And that's, I think how some of those major public works have happened and it's just getting your stuff out there to the right people. And the only way to do that is to spread, spread your, your brand far and wide. Um, doing it totally localized, I don't think necessarily works anymore. Yeah, it's so interesting how you've made those two things, like you had said earlier, weight and size as parameters in the making of your work and also allowing them to influence not only the form but the content of the work Mm -hmm. itself. Um, And it's so true how much of a consideration that is. Um, And I wanted to also just get tactical for a second because you mentioned some of the strategies that you use for budgeting and for time management. 
um, just to get a sense of where you are on a month-to-month basis. Uh, And actually, one of the things you had said during one of our first coffee meetings about tracking your time on a daily basis, I uh, tried implementing for a couple weeks because my life was in, you know, so much flux and I was having a really hard time with creating routines um, when I first moved to the city and figuring out, uh, you know, a new schedule. And so I tried that just tracking my time um, and I would plug in, you know, after the fact into the calendar, uh, you know, every every hour, every half hour, um, what I was doing just so that I could look back on each week and get Mm -hmm. a clearer sense of, Um, you know, where my time was spent. And it was a little hard for me to notice any patterns just because, again, my my life was such in flux. And I think if I tried it again now that I've started some more regular um, jobs and things, it would be a little easier uh, to maybe find gaps where I can be a little Mm -hmm. more efficient. But I think it did at least help me develop just more of a self-awareness around where I was spending mm-hmm. my time and you know what I was doing um so that was really useful and I just wanted to point that out um and I'm curious to know like what other um ways you track your time or money because um, there's just something to be said for getting really candid about both of those things um and you know it was kind of hard for me to, to do that even and and realize like okay here I spent two and a half hours watching Netflix where I probably shouldn't have um and then other times when you're really productive but just having to get really honest with yourself about where it's all going is I think the first step um but can you talk a little more about that just like some of the strategies or tools that you use for um keeping on top of your your budget and time management? Well, I recently got my own computer. So for a while, my wife and I were sharing a computer, and I think that's helped actually quite a bit, is kind of having just the run at the mill. Like, you, it's, it's all yours. It's all customized to whatever you're doing, so you can actually let yourself get into a routine. And if you kind of make the mess on the computer, it's yours to clean up, or it's, you know, things like that have are automatically, I think, have been a help, because my wife's a graphic designer, and so she, she needs the computer often. And you know, she has a lot of things going on and her stuff also takes up a lot more space than some of my things does like, um, megabytes and things like that. And so all those things, uh, just kind of are taken into account just on its base standpoint. Now, since I have that new computer, I've went into like, um, numbers, which is, I think like the Excel version, the Apple Excel version, you know, it's called numbers. And then I go in mm-hmm. and just start kind of documenting everything you know, um, or transferring over what I have documented into these spreadsheets. And then I try to make graphs and things like that just to like, you know, it, that takes time. But once you kind of have that consistency down and you have a format and you have like a particular style of document ready and ready to go, and you just know what you need to plug in it every month, it's not about regulating yourself at the beginning is what I'm kind of seeing is because we always want to jump right in and like do our top goal first, you know, for when it comes to saving and when it comes to like playing around with, you know, budgeting. I want to save a thousand dollars a month, and you start off strong with like, this is how I want to do it because I want to s- save a thousand dollars. Where instead, you need to be like, okay, for the whole month, I'm gonna just track what I do naturally and try to stay as natural as I can, and let the tracking become a habit to where I don't notice it. Mm -hmm. Then from there, then you analyze the like as raw data as you possibly can 
and then try to figure out, okay, where this is where my money is going naturally, like far more natural than me, you know, stripping things away, you know, because then you have a better gauge of like where, where there's gaps, where you're spending more money, where you didn't realize you were, um, things like that, and then you can reallocate it. And I do that even with my art practice. So um, some months I might not apply to as many things because I need to buy a new tool or because I need to do these things, but I never would have known that if I didn't just kind of do whatever I needed to do to have, to feel like I was most productive. And whatever that cost, that's kind of where I was going with that. So I wasn't forcing myself into anything. I was just taking what I was doing naturally and trying to reallocate that stuff. Because if I was already able to pay for it, then, mm -hmm. you know, you can continue to keep doing it. You just have to get creative. Yeah, and I, I don't know if that made sense. I want to stress the importance of being smart about tracking your budget. Uh, I recently yeah. left my day job. It was terrifying because I was making you know equal parts money with my creative job and with my day job. Yeah, and yeah. I knew I couldn't fully sustain myself off of just my creative job if I make the same amount of money this year as I did last year. Year, I'm gonna be in right. trouble. But uh, just yeah, after leaving that job, I got super, super strict about my budget and figured out exactly how much money needed to be allocated to every single aspect of my life to all of the bills. And I am definitely sustaining off of significantly less money right now. But because I'm being so much more strategic about it, I'm able to have a much better quality of life around that smaller budget. And budget in general is like oh kind gosh. of a terrifying word because it it feels very restrictive. But if you are, yeah. you know, savvy and clever with how you're doing it and you're really strict, it can actually yeah. make things much better. And I'm glad oh, yeah. that you brought that up because I think that that's... That's some of the best advice I can offer, at least as far as what I've learned from the last several months of my life. I'm like, wow, budgeting, who knew? <laughs> Everyone but me, apparently. Yeah, right. <laughs> Nicole, uh, have you ever tried to figure out how much your each individual painting costs material-wise? Um, yeah. Well, yes and no. I'll say um, some of the costs are easier to, to estimate, like you know, the supports or stretcher mm -hmm. bars and then canvas or more recently I've been working on PVC. So some of those are a little more custom. And I, I know because I have to, you know, order them and pay that cost up front. And then as far as the materials I'm working with, a lot of this stuff is, you know, the paints are going to, I'm going to be working with for a while, even though they're disposable. Mm -hmm. um, they'll carry through several paintings or I work with a lot of found paper. Um, so I don't know if I have a super clear idea of what each individual painting is um, costing material-wise, but actually one project that I've been working on recently, um, which Amanda already knows about, um, but it's this big mural locally that I've been actually really trying to track so that I could have a better sense going forward um, if I were to do another project of this scale. Uh, exactly, you know, how much paint I'm using, uh, you know, how much of everything I would need so that I can, um, in providing estimates maybe for future projects, um, roll that material cost into it and have a really clear idea so that I'm not, um, you know, I'm not eating that cost or, or fronting it in the mm -hmm. future. Um, so it's definitely something I'm trying to get a little more clear on so that I can wrap that into future project budgets and estimates when I'm hopefully 
you know, working on commissions or other mural projects. But up to this point, it, it hasn't been as much of a consideration, honestly. Um, but, you know, obviously now I'm facing the, the challenges of maybe having large-scale work that I can't always ship cross-country um, unless someone else is helping with that, like a, a gallery or a consultant, which, you know, isn't always or is often not the case. Um, so it, it would probably behoove me to be a little more upfront with myself about that and sort of work that into the cost of each piece. Um, That's something I just finally did. I always had like kind of a rough estimate, but I never actually documented it. And I finally did this time because I'm getting ready for a bunch more shows coming up. And I calculated out now each one of, um, so out of the binary series, each one of them is around the same size, but they take up more materials and certain types of space uh, because they're just different shapes or they're more complicated shapes. So they actually take more wood to produce. And so that comes into the cost. And so for this particular one, I've only done one so far, but um, for my Spatial Binary 6, it is um, approximately $94 for all of the materials to produce the work and to produce the the wood crate for it. Um, that's not labor or anything, and that's adding a 10% tax. So it's $94 flat. Now I know like how much that's going to cost, and now I can, you know, like that helps budget. If I apply this work to four shows, right now I'm having a 55% acceptance rate out of all the shows I, I put out there. Um, so I can then assume if I did all four of those, for example, all four shows in one month, and I put spatial binary six in there. I can expect that I'm gonna have to try to shut. I'm gonna probably have to shell out what is that, $188 for two, to make two brand new ones for that show. Um, so then I can like mm. I can figure that out. You know what I'm saying? Um, and then that significantly yeah. drops down too, depending on if I start my next project is to try to time everything out. Is to have enough of an inventory of these works so that. Um, when one comes back, I'm not having to make new ones constantly where I can actually just, I time everything out. One show ends, the other one comes back and I can just interchange everything. Okay. So that cost, that'll cut costs down like 65%. I think I can start, I would start making them. It would be at cost instead of making Um, all these shipping containers, like all these boxes and stuff, because I have to, right now I have to make a new box for every single one. So you cut the box out that cuts, mm, that cuts uh, about $60 out right there. So, I mean, those types of things. It's so interesting to hear you take this production mentality into your practice and the flow of your work and getting it in and out of the studio. Um, I also want to ask you a question about pricing your work. So I'm assuming that you're rolling the material costs into it. And then are you also pricing your pieces based on your time or are you signing a cost to the labor that goes into it? Or is it more based on the scale of the piece or what are the sort of factors that um, you're using to price the works um, for sale if assuming that you are also selling them as you know as as art objects and so right now what I'm doing with that is uh, because I've done enough of these and keep doing the repetition of them I get a little quicker and a little more accurate and I get everything kind of down a little more with that being said I have figured out that it takes anywhere from 8 to 11 hours for one complete binary and its packaging to go for, go from start to finish. And so the way I'm charging right now um, is based off an old estimate before, way before like I, I got all of these things taken care of, but right now they're at $3,000. And so 
one of my base algorithms that I was trying to develop that I felt was appropriate and accurate is there's a lot of factors. There's tons of things because my work is installation. So it's, it gets even Mm -hmm. more tricky. So they're at 3000. You figure the gallery is going to take 40%. So you automatically chop that off your, your total. But the way I did that before all that even happens is I actually started going from zero and started adding instead of like finding a price and then taking away. I found that adding it up and then like multiplying it by X percent ended up being a more accurate pricing uh, for me. Mm -hmm. So, Mm. you know, I'd take that $100 and I'd use that. So say it was, so to make one was a hundred bucks and the crate. So all that totals a hundred dollars. takes about 11 hours. The way I've been charging my labor um, into that price is what I make now. And mm-hmm. actually what I decided to do for that, uh, come to think of it is that I actually charge overtime. So whatever base rate I have for my nine to five job, I do that and then do overtime because to me, you know, art is my job, but I need to price it as if it were, I was getting paid extra. Yeah. Um, so that's how I do labor costs for that. And then after those things are together, each each work kind of has, and the way I see it, is like a base, a base like creative fee. It's like the fact that I've made it up. It's like an original piece of artwork coming from my head, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I put like, I just put like a base price on that. And so let's say it was 500 bucks. And then from that total, then I put a 10% fee on like all the materials and everything. All those things. I've So all that stuff I put a 10% tax essentially on just to like make up for actual taxes I was paying for. Then I need to make sure that it goes from that total, it goes a 30% tax because if I start selling these at a, at a, any type of rate, I'm going to have to pay taxes to the government mm-hmm. for that too. And that averages around 30%. So now that we have both of those percentages on the flat base, then I end up doing the 40 to 50% range for the galleries take on it. And then that gives me like the total pricing. It gets more complicated when people start asking about if I want to do installations or at their house and things like that. And I said that that is like, there's a whole separate thing that I have to do for that, which has not been taken really in consideration yet. I have told people that anywhere in California, I will do an installation for them at their home if that's where they, if they buy my work. Um, Because I can generally fly pretty cheap or drive pretty quickly to anywhere in California. And I think that was fair enough, you know, um, especially I think starting out with your work being sold. I think if you have the skill set to install your own work, try to do that because it gives the person giving you money for your work. It gives them an opportunity for you to sit and chat in their house, see see what kind of space your work is going to be up in. You, they get to spend extra time with mm-hmm. someone that they spent money on, which is kind of like a meet and greet, mm-hmm. you know, but you're just not famous, right? Like, but it's the same concept. And if you play <laughs> off that, uh, people love that. And that's how you get long-term buyers. That's how you get people inspired by you to come back and buy something later. Yeah. Is to be, yeah, you know, absolutely. to be personable in that way. You know, yeah, you might lose out a couple hundred bucks maybe, or you might just break even. But in the long, you're looking at the long game for that. And the long game is, is that your work could potentially, like, once people start buying your work, it has the potential to skyrocket in price very quickly. Um, or bottom, or like not bottom out, but stay stagnant for long periods of time. So, but either way, playing the long game that way, I think, is going to prove to be very helpful with mm-hmm. customer service being very automated nowadays it's uh people love someone doing that that's another good opportunity to provide that great customer service and it's yep. it's a 
another prime example of that where if somebody has a really positive interaction with you and they feel as though they are getting a very unique and almost intimate experience, they're going to love and value that piece so much more because they feel like Mm -hmm. it was almost made by a friend. And they also are going to be more loyal to you as an artist and want to continue to buy from you because that experience was so incredibly positive and every aspect from having a great piece in their home to also knowing the artist on that level just mm-hmm. it's really it's it's smart in addition to being practical and logical and reasonable i had one question this kind of segues in a different direction but I noticed on your website that you are really candid about the references that you use and the things that inspire you. And I have not seen that mm-hmm. really on anybody else's professional website. Like, you know, sure, you can follow someone on Instagram or maybe they have a blog or a Pinterest mm-hmm. and you can see kind of what interests right. them. But it was such a unique perspective to show here's what I make and here's what makes me kind of inspired to make what I make. And I, I wanted to yeah. hear your thoughts on that because it was it was awesome to see. Like, I loved it. I'm glad you enjoyed that. That's something that I've been avidly working on on that site because I like exploring, like, histories and context. And I've always been a researcher. I want to know so much about some of my favorite artists and you just, you don't know. And then when you have, when you leave it up to a historian or a critic or a magazine to kind of take, yeah, sure, an interview, but, you know, only an hour of what they do, you know, an hour of their time talking or whatever, you still don't get everything. And then it gets edited and then it gets re-edited. And this is an opportunity for people, I think, on my site to see exactly the sources, like what I'm getting out of these. I've, you know, for example, I think you're, you were referencing um, my link on my site called Home Library. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, which is literally every book I have in my library right now, which is growing. It's behind me right now, but uh, <laughs> it's, it's small, but I'm, I, I'm always, I always want to buy more books, but um, I take, take those photographs of those books and then I put them on the site, and then if you click on the book, you can actually it'll send you to a link to where you can learn more about the book, or sometimes a PDF copy, or a critic review, or something like that. And it just gives you a broader perspective where I'm coming from, and all the time I spend reading. There's actually all I like underlining in my books. <laughs> I always have, I'm like writing in the margins, and I'm always doing this. Yeah. People always ask if I'm like in school studying for a test or something, and I'm like... <laughs> No. no, no, I just I just like remembering certain things that I'm reading and so I mark them. And so what I've been doing is actually like making a very thorough Word document of all my notes. Mm-hmm. And eventually those books will also have a link. Like so when you click on my home library and click on a specific book, you'll get to see the notes, like the excerpts mm-hmm. of what exactly like I was thinking and I found interesting in the book and the page reference. So it becomes a bibliography, mm-hmm. uh, a, yeah, a living, breathing bibliography in some cases. And so that gives people all sorts of different contexts to kind of play around with and try to like pick apart like what goes on in my brain. And then it gives them an accurate reading without me having to write an artist statement, Yeah. Um, for example. You know, because the way I see things is going to be a lot different than the way other people are. But if you give them a ton of context and they're interested enough, they'll bridge something. You know, and if you just give it to them and make it accessible, they're going to go for it, you know. Yeah. Yeah, that's such an interesting way of building a dialogue around your work, too. And um, 
telling your own story as an artist mm-hmm. behind uh, the work itself. And we'll share that link if you're okay with yes, it with please. Um, everyone so that they can see what you're reading and yeah. um, just how you're sharing your thought process on your website. Yeah. Since we're talking about it now, do you want to tell us uh, where everyone can find your work kind of across the internet or if it's uh, in any galleries right now or place like upcoming shows? Oh, yeah. Um, so my website is nicholashollabarger.com. It should come up right away. Do you have any final advice that you would want to share that you wish younger you knew or that you would just want to be able to give to any listeners we have? Hopefully we have some. <laughs> <laughs> um, if not, there will be soon enough. They'll, they'll, they will come. Yep. <laughs> uh, yeah, we've we haven't released the podcast yeah. yet. I should mention we're recording this pre-launch. Yep. Excellent. Yep. I don't really have anything as far as like for my younger self because I just kept trying to stay open to as many things as people would mention. Mm-hmm. Didn't always work because um, I have a stubborn streak. Really keeping your eyes open for people like genuine people people that are willing to hang out with you and people to talk with. And if you're a creative, talking about creative. We get really bogged down with so many things throughout our life. Well, I brought it up to Nicole during our coffee meeting about trying to figure out who to spend your time with. And then if you're going to, you better be prepared to listen to everything they have to say. You know, it's equally, it's, yes, it's important for you as well to get whatever you need out, out in the world too, to them. But if you're spending time with someone, I think at a, there's a certain point in your life where you start realizing like you just gotta, you gotta really focus on those people that, that want to listen and want to be giving and want to like, even if it's for a short period, you want to try to take in as much as you can. So I don't know. So you just never stop learning, I guess. And that comes full circle. This podcast, for example, was a, was a lovely, you know, surprise <laughs> based off of just me cold calling, you know, Nicole, uh, I, oh, maybe that's, maybe that's something right yeah. there. So Nicole and I, how I even got her email address. Oh yeah. <laughs> I guess that would be the one thing is like don't be upset or jealous if you don't get into something because you never know what the what who you're going to meet or whatever what you don't know who was looking at what work or anything like that you just don't know i wasn't always like that you know a long time ago but now it's like no if these people won something you should at very least congratulate them and then after that like be like, hey, if you like their work and it jives well with whatever you're thinking about, like ask them out for coffee and have a conversation and start start a dialogue with someone like that. Because, you know, those people are doing what you're doing. They want pretty similar things that you do. And, you know, if they're kind hearted and everything, they'll they'll help you. Yeah. Um, and, that's, and that was that was really a good thing. That's such a big reason why we kind of wanted to start this podcast in the first place is I think I think a lot of us have had someone reach out and just be really kind and really generous with their knowledge and their experiences. And I know the people in my life that have really just helped pave the road for me. And I think it's really easy to get into this sort of aggressive, competitive mindset when it comes to other artists, where it's like, you don't know them, but you resent them for having opportunities that you don't have mm-hmm. or for, you know, getting grants or scholarships or, or getting into shows or making more money or notoriety, you know, whatever. I mean, you could hate someone mm-hmm. because they have more Instagram followers than you. And it's like, why? <laughs> yeah. Like we're all we're all trying to make it work and we're all trying to 
figure out the best way to to get there and there's no reason for us to be pushing each other down along the road like there's there's room for all of us so why not be be considerate on the journey yeah yeah Yeah, that's such a good reminder that we are all part of this creative community ultimately Mm -hmm. too and that any you know opportunities that come to other artists around us are ultimately all you know helping to lift each other up and helping to make you know the arts more more integral and maybe just to make it more necessary you know in the world so I think ultimately those things do come back around to lift up um, the much larger community that we're all yeah. part of oh, yeah definitely but that was great advice thank thank you for those parting yeah. words So that's it for this episode of the Beyond the Studio podcast. You can find show notes, references, and a brief summary of the episode over at our website, beyondthe.studio. And you'll also see links to Nicholas's uh, information. While you're there, be sure to subscribe to our email list where we have all kinds of exclusive content that we'll only have available to our subscribers. So thanks for listening and we'll catch you next time. If you're listening to this episode via iTunes, we'd love to ask you to give us a rating and a review because it really makes a big difference. The more reviews we get, the more people we can connect with. And the more we connect, the better we get. And we're trying to get real good here. I think we all know how to stop a recording. Good night, Amanda. Yeah. Thanks. Bye.